Welcome to this week's episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll examine a new strategy to improve the durability of remission after CAR T-cell therapy for pediatric B-cell leukemia, explore the genomic landscape of breast implant-associated anaplastic large-cell lymphomas, and discuss a new report showing that the occurrence of arterial thrombotic events following the diagnosis of myeloproliferative neoplasms is associated with a significantly increased risk of a second cancer. First up, we'll examine elements of the study published in Blood Journal entitled Sequential CD19-22 CAR-T Therapy Induces Sustained Remission in Children with Relapsed or Refractory B-Cell Acute Lymphoblastic Leukemia by Pan and Colleagues. Hoping to reduce the risk of immune escape in pediatric B-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia, referred to as B-cell ALL, this team tried a novel approach towards dual antigen CAR T-cell targeting. Immunotherapeutic approaches have revolutionized the treatment of ALL, especially for patients with chemotherapy-resistant disease. Trials with CD19 or CD22 chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy have shown 70% to 90% complete remission rates in patients with refractory or relapsed B-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia. However, many patients who achieve complete remission still relapse within one year. Relapse is often associated with loss or mutation of CD19 on leukemia cells or loss of CAR T-cells needed to maintain surveillance. Thus, new strategies are needed to improve the durability of remission after CAR T-therapy, especially when patients cannot be bridged to allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplantation. Several Phase I trials have used either CD19-CD22 bispecific CAR T-cells or a cocktail of CD19 and CD22 CAR T-cells to attempt to prevent loss of target leukemia cell antigens. There has been some success, although long-term outcomes remain under study. Pan et al. took a different tack. They hypothesized that sequential administration of CD19 CAR T-cells followed by a second CAR T-cell product targeting a different antigen and given before relapse occurred might extend CAR T persistence to improve long-term outcomes. Their phase one trial enrolled 20 children with either relapsed or refractory B-cell ALL. CD19 CAR T-cells were infused and then once these became undetectable in the peripheral blood, patients were given an infusion of CD22 CAR T-cells. All patients achieved complete remission after the initial CD19 CAR T infusion and were in remission at the time of the subsequent infusion of CD22 CAR T-cells. Although three patients relapsed with a median of 6.9 months, 17 remained in CR at 12 months. Cytokine release syndrome was seen in most patients following each CAR-T infusion, but was generally mild, particularly with the second infusion, when all patients were in remission. Out of 20 treated patients, only two of the relapsed patients exhibited loss of CD19 on their leukemia blasts, suggesting 
that the risk of relapse associated with antigen escape had been greatly reduced. According to the authors, the long-term efficacy of this sequential CAR T-cell strategy was much better than their institution's prior experience with single CD19 or CD22 CAR T-therapy. Overall, this fascinating study by Pan et al. suggests that sequential infusion of CD19 and CD22 CAR T-cells is effective and safe in treating pediatric patients with relapsed or refractory B-cell ALL and can improve the durability of remission, possibly through preventing antigen escape, as well as extending the duration of CAR T-cell persistence. Although the findings in this proof-of-concept study have proven to be encouraging, the future value of this strategy in different clinical settings and patient cohorts requires more exploration, but could have broad applicability. Next, we'll discuss the previously elusive oncogenic events involved in a subgroup of anaplastic large-cell lymphoma, a point clarified by Laurent et al. in the Blood Journal article entitled Gene Alterations in Epigenetic Modifiers and JAK-STAT Signaling are Frequent in Breast Implant-Associated ALCL. This type of lymphoma, abbreviated as BIALCL, is a rare form of T-cell lymphoma that develops around breast implants. 80% of BIALCL patients present with an isolated effusion adjacent to the implant and have an excellent outcome with surgery. 20% of patients present with tumor invading the breast, which also might disseminate outside the breast, and have a worse prognosis. BIALCLs share a similar morphology and immunophenotype with systemic anaplastic large-cell lymphoma, but lack typical rearrangements of certain genes seen in the systemic form. A few studies have identified STAT3 mutations in BIALCL, but only two cases had previously been studied by whole exome sequencing. To address this gap, Laurent and colleagues characterized the genomic landscape of 34 BIALCLs collected from patients diagnosed through the French Lymphopath Network. 19 patients had in situ disease, and 15 had tumor-type disease with a larger tumor mass and characterized by capsule invasion. As explained by the authors, whole exome sequencing and or targeted deep sequencing showed recurrent mutations of epigenetic modifiers in 74% of cases. The relevance of epigenetic alterations has been reported in other T-cell lymphomas, such as hepatosplenic T-cell lymphoma, ALCLs, intestinal T-cell lymphoma, peripheral T-cell lymphoma, and extranodal NK T-cell lymphoma. These latter malignancies also had mutations of the TET2, IDH2, DNMT3, and SETD2 genes, which were either absent or uncommon in this series of BIALCL patients. According to the study, 60% of the cases also harbored somatic mutations in at least one member of the JAK-STAT cascade. These mutations were more frequent in tumor type than in the in situ subgroup and often involved STAT3 and JAK1. These results support the hypothesis that chronic inflammation and subversion of cytokine receptor signaling play a role in BIALCL pathogenesis. 
Immunohistochemistry revealed strong nuclear staining for phosphostat-3 in all BIALCL cases, regardless of their mutational status. And since STAT3 mutations have been shown to increase the phosphorylation of STAT3 in response to IL-6, overexpression of cytokines and or somatic mutations might be responsible for constitutive STAT3 activation in BIALCL. Furthermore, this pathogenic mechanism appears not to be specific to breast implant-associated disease, since STAT3 activation is also known to occur in systemic ALCLs. JAK-STAT activation in BIALCL may be exacerbated since the tumor occurs in an enclosed space in which cytokines can reach high levels due to chronic inflammation. Notably, this study is the largest BIALCL series characterized at the genomic level reported to date. It confirms the key role of the JAK-STAT pathway and highlights the importance of epigenetics in BIALCL pathogenesis. Compounds targeting these molecular alterations could possibly be used in the future to treat the subgroup of BIALCL patients that have aggressive refractory disease. Our final topic examines discoveries by De Stefano et al., the authors of the Blood Journal article, Arterial Thrombosis in Philadelphia-Negative Myeloproliferative Neoplasms Predicts Second Cancer. It is well established that unprovoked venous thromboembolism may precede a malignancy. More recently, it was reported that malignancy can also be heralded by arterial thrombosis. Patients with Philadelphia-negative myeloproliferative neoplasms, or MPN, are prone to the development of a second cancer, but identification of associated factors requires additional study. The clinical burden of MPN is marked by arterial and venous thrombosis, as well as hemorrhagic complications, and a propensity to transform into myelofibrosis and acute myeloid leukemia. In addition, recent cohort studies and population-based results highlighted that MPN patients have an increased risk to develop second cancers and lymphoproliferative disorders. The current study by De Stefano and colleagues utilized a nested case control study with 647 MPN cases with second cancers, along with more than 1,200 matched MPN cancer-free patients that were recruited from European Leukemia Net centers. They previously reported that carcinoma accounted for two-thirds of second cancers among the 647 cases, mostly involving prostate, breast, lung, and colorectal sites. In De Stefano et al.'s present study, they re-examine this large database with two goals. First, to evaluate the frequency and type of vascular complications in MPN patients who developed a second cancer compared to the cohort of MPN patients who did not. Second cancers included carcinoma, non-melanoma skin cancer, melanoma, and hematological cancers, but excluded leukemia. Their second goal was to establish whether arterial and venous thrombosis occurring after the diagnosis of MPN could predict the occurrence of a second cancer. Thrombotic events considered of interest included ischemic stroke, transient ischemic attacks, acute myocardial infarction, peripheral arterial thrombosis, retinal artery or vein occlusion, pulmonary embolism, 
and deep venous thrombosis, including thrombosis of cerebral or splanchnic veins. All thrombotic events were objectively proven. Their analysis found that the frequency of thrombosis preceding MPN diagnosis was similar, occurring in 20% of MPN patients whether or not a second cancer later developed. However, thrombotic event frequency was significantly higher after MPN diagnosis in the cohort of patients who later were diagnosed with a second cancer. This increased frequency was accounted for by a significantly higher proportion of arterial thrombosis, which was 6.2%, compared to the 3.7% in MPN patients who did not get a second cancer. There was no difference in the proportion of venous thrombosis occurring after MPN diagnosis in patients who developed a second cancer compared to those who did not. However, interestingly, patients with carcinoma as a second malignancy experienced splanchnic vein thrombosis after MPN diagnosis more frequently. Thus, the study by De Stefano et al. identified an association of arterial thrombosis with a second cancer in MPN patients. The procoagulant mechanisms underlying cancer-associated thrombophilia are complex and multifactorial and have been explored to explain the association with venous thrombosis. However, less is currently known about the basis of cancer-associated arterial thrombosis. Interestingly, Others have reported that patients with solid tumors have a higher prevalence of clonal hematopoiesis of undetermined significance. Thus, it may not be surprising that MPN clonal diseases may further increase the carcinogenetic risk. De Stefano et al. suggest that a biological link between arterial thrombosis and carcinoma in MPN may be related to an underlying common pathogenic mechanism, such as an aberrant inflammatory response consistently found in MPN. Importantly, the findings in the study by De Stefano et al. also have practical implications. The authors suggest careful clinical surveillance for diagnosis of early cancer in patients who develop arterial thrombosis during follow-up after the diagnosis of MPN. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening. The Blood Podcast series is made possible in part by support from Servier Pharmaceuticals.